Imagine driving into a hospital and seeing a billboard saying, courtesy of the People's Republic of China. Over the last 30 years, China's presence in Africa has grown faster than ever. From providing what seemed to be an endless stream of cash in aid, loans and infrastructure, it has now become an alternative financing arrangement to the West. This has obviously got people talking. China says they provide Africa with better options and respect for Africa's sovereignty. Win-win, as they call it. On the other hand, the West says China, with its lack of transparency and lack of democratic norms, make it a predatory country with its projects laced in bad debt on poor countries. Basically, China is not good for Africa. But what's the African perspective? In these two episodes, we discuss Sino-African relations, the history, the money, and the politics in a story of dragons and lions. Welcome to the Africa for Dummies podcast. I am an African. Wherever you're listening to us from, welcome back to the Africa for Dummies uh, podcast. This is your go-to podcast on everything African affairs, particularly political and economic issues, simplified and brought to you right into wherever you are listening to us from. You could be listening to us from anywhere. Today, we have a very special uh, topic, which has been uh, under high demand, very controversial sometimes. And we have a very um, qualified guest to explain this complex relationship. This is the China-Africa relationship. Some people say China in Africa, some people say China and Africa. They also have, those terms also have particular um, connotations around them. But today we're just going to be discussing the full trajectory of China-Africa relations, where we've come from and what it is now. We have Dr. Emmanuel Matambo, who is the research director at the University of Johannesburg Center for China-Africa Studies, one of the most prestigious um, institutes on China-Africa relations on the African continent. So, uh, first of all, welcome to the Africa for Tamis podcast, and we're very happy to have you on this uh, much uh, talked about and needed uh, topic. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Zenges Makoloi. It's quite an honor. And um, yeah, I, I hope that uh, the listeners and viewers are going to find some significance in our ensuing discussion. Thank you once again for inviting me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, everyone is discussing the China-Africa China -Africa relations. It's um, It's got a very complex history and very, what's the, the research term? I think is value added. You know, everyone has their own subjective understanding of it so i think maybe if we can just go to understanding where we have come from um as an african continent and then maybe if you use examples of countries uh, individually um so you know today we normally take for granted that china is either a pending superpower or is already a superpower in world affairs and uh, in africa in particular um this was not always the case of course uh, so could you just describe China's role in post-colonial Africa, uh, particularly during the Cold War, and what so, sort of how Africa understood China? Well, once again, thank you very much for your kind invitation. And um, for us to create some context uh, in China's role in Africa, we have to go back to the end of the Second World War, when uh, China was still under the rule of the Kuomintang, or the Republic of China, read by uh, the Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, um, after China was always in permanent, or it was always in uh, revolutionary favor, right? From 1920 or 1921, as some people might put it, when the Communist Party of China was founded until uh, 1945. But then the communists and the nationalists of the Kuomintang had this uneasy 
alliance between the two of them. And that alliance was mostly tailored towards defeating Japan. Japan, uh, which had a lot of dominance in China, and it was also ruling over the island that we now know as Taiwan, but it was called Formosa. It was actually a foreign domination by Japan. And then we had the Portuguese who ruled over Macau, and then we had the British who ruled over Hong Kong. So already we see three uh, territories belonging to China that were under the suzerainty of uh, foreign powers in China. So the alliance that the communists and the nationalists of China formed uh, from 1921 to about 1945 was mostly about defeating the Japanese and then getting rid of them in Taiwan. Um, and then after the Second World War, Japan is defeated, um, Japan capitulates, and then what happened now between the communists and the nationalists? There is this civil war, this struggle for power, and the communists, by their sheer use of numbers, they tried to, they, they, they succeeded in getting rid of the nationalists, and then the nationalists were now based on the island of Taiwan, where they established the Republic of China. And then with them, by the way, went recognition of the United Nations, which has been, which has been formed in 1945. So mm. the communists on mainland China who were way more in terms of numbers than the people on the island, the nations on the island, were not members of the, of the United Nations. So that was always kind of an affront on the uh, political and the diplomatic dignity of the communists on mainland uh, China. So mm -hmm. one was one way of trying to make sure that uh, the, island, the, the, the communists on China had international support that could help them to mm -hmm. be members of the United Nations. So one way of doing that was by establishing close relationships with African states, most of which by 1949, when the, when the People's Republic of China was established, were still under colonial rule. So in 1955, okay. something momentous happened in the history of uh, diplomatic politics. And that was the groundbreaking or the watershed moment that was called the Bandung Conference in Indonesia. The Bandung Conference. The Bandung Conference, yes. Other people call it the Afro-Asian Conference. This was the first time when countries of what was called to what was later to be called the third world met to say we are in a in an international system that is mainly ruled by the United States and its NATO allies, and then on the other hand, it is being ruled also by the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USR or the USSR, also known as the Soviet Union. So the Bandung Conference now brought people who said, we are independent of the United States and its NATO allies, and we want independence from the USSR. And that formed the backdrop of the non-aligned um, movement. And then what happened in 1956, one year after Bandung Conference, China established its first diplomatic relations with an African country, and that was Egypt. So because of that, because of Egypt's Pan-African, uh, Abdel Nasser's Pan-African interests, and also with the Kwame Nkrumah, who later gained independence for Ghana later in 1957, we see that China was actively involved in decolonizing the African continent. But then we have to, as, as you rightly put it, saying at the beginning that China's current economic prominence has not always been the case. It was the same at that time. It was a desperate poor country, but it helped Africa in terms of propaganda and some minimal military and material training, but it was mostly through propaganda. Mm. And then um, it was handsomely rewarded in 1971 when uh, with massive support from Africa, China, the People's Republic of China became a member 
of the United Nations. That motion was actually, um, if, I, if I remember very well, that motion was actually proposed by Algeria, an African country, and China defeated Taiwan of the United Nations and became a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, the, obviously at, at Taiwan's expense. So that is what created this uh, post-colonial synergy that Africa enjoyed with China. But it has to be said as well that as Francophone Africa especially was still kind of uh, very much skeptical about China because China was a, uh, an avowed communist and socialist party, but Francophone Africa was still tied to its capitalist former colonizer that is France. And then in Southern Africa, obviously there was Malawi. Malawi had a very close relationship with apartheid South Africa and Taiwan because apartheid South Africa had relations with Taiwan as well. And then obviously the Kingdom of Swatini, Swatini mm -hmm. up to now still has relations with China. So yes, there was this synergy in post-colonial Africa between Africa and China. That is just a background that I can give at the moment. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a perfect uh, uh, point to stop it at. Uh, the sort of this, the, the dynamic of the relationship between um, African countries and Taiwan, African countries and China. So just uh, recap, essentially the People's Republic of China, which are predominantly for those that um, um, are trying to grasp what uh, this relationship is. The People's Republic of China is the communist uh, political organization that Mao Zedong had started and they took over from the Kuomintang, which was sort of Western aligned, if you'd like, the nationalist. And they ended up on Formosa, which is known as Taiwan today. And they, so the Kuomintang had the seat in the Security Council until 1971. 71, yes. 71, yes. And Africa uh, was a predominant force in supporting China to get a permanent veto-wielding seat in the Security Council. Yes. So, so it's essentially we see the integration of China into the height of global politics and decision making and sort of due to Africa or at least Africa played a huge role um and that's very interesting because we did an episode on the Taiwan relationship with Africa and Swaziland then now known as Iswatini uh, is sort of the lone wolf now fervently supporting um Taiwan and this is interesting because more African countries at that time had supported Taiwan, but they started shifting after China became a powerful country. Now, if we just fast forward, of course, the Cold War, we can go deeper into this and look at how, you know, China supported during the Angola Wars, China supported one side and um, the Soviet Union supported another side. So I think maybe we could just it's worth noting that China and the Soviet Union weren't always on the same side. Um, however, I think let's just move to uh, sort of the more contemporary last 20 to 30 years. Uh, China in the last 20 years has seen its loans in Africa grow massively from around 250 million in 2002 to over $25 billion in its peak. That was around 2017, uh, somewhere there. Globally, China's aid has increased from just above 500 million to over 3 billion in 2021. China Africa aid. Um, oh, sorry, that's globally. And then uh, trade has also increased from around 10 billion up to 250 billion in 2021. So, what 
really as you said china's china's economic prowess has not really has not it's not been the predominant economic power in the last century now why is it that in the last 20 years and last 30 years somehow china has just rapidly increased its involvement uh, trade wise aid wise uh, financially development wise what is it that really africans see in china and what is it that china sees in africa well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, you created a very good context for us to, to for me to respond um, to that question there. Again, uh, as a student of history, I'll take you back to 1976, uh, in September 1976, when Chairman Mao died, uh, who was the founding uh, chairman of the People's Republic of, of, of China. He had put China in what I call the, this ideological straitjacket. He experimented a lot with a great leap forward, uh, he experimented a lot uh, with, with the 100 uh, Flowers uh, campaign, and then he experimented with the Cultural Revolution. All of them ended disastrous with millions of people going to premature and avoidable deaths um, because of China's economic uh, ideological straitjacket, which somehow was um, a consequence of what you mentioned about the Sino-Soviet split that started uh, in 1956 with the Soviet Union's invasion of Hungary and then uh, up to the up to nineteen um, up to the time that uh, Chairman Mao uh, died. So after Chairman Mao dies now in nineteen seventy six, Deng Xiaoping, who is today credited to being the architect of China's uh, development miracle, is rehabilitated because he had been purged at least two times by from the high echelons of the Communist Party of China. So he's rehabilitated and then um, becomes the chairman of the Central Military Commission in China. And because of that, now he started what they called special zones. Now these special zones were experiments, experimental pockets within China, starting mostly in Shenzhen, where they said that, let us experiment by opening up the economy from this trade jacket into which Bao had confined us. Let us open up, let us look at some of the positive aspects of uh, market economics, capitalist economics, even if we remain uh, under the leadership of the Communist Party of China. So Deng Xiaoping uh, experiments with changing. But this is when uh, Deng Xiaoping were benefited China even most. He was he had a friend, uh, well, a, a colleague called Chen Yun. Chen Yun told uh, Deng Xiaoping, look, this uh, special zone is going to help us a lot, but it should only be economic rather than political. So it was actually Chen Yun who said, let us rather call them not special zones, but special economic zones. So he inserted the word economic to make sure that whatever we're going to do, even if these places are going to practice some capitalist tendencies, they should not adopt political tendencies of the capitalist West. So they should be strictly economic. And, and because of that, uh, China started borrowing technology, started sending hundreds of thousands of its, people, its students to, to the West, the United States chiefly, by the way, to go and train its students who are now coming back to the People's Republic of China to build uh, the, 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 the economy there. And then Deng, um, Deng Xiaoping also seized on what um, Zhou Enlai, the previous premier of China, had called the four modernization. That was our industry, defense, science and technology, and then agriculture. So they, they, they embark on these as the priorities of building an economic template for, for China. And that is why China's economy now is rapidly uh, increased. By the way, by 2008, 
China had an average growth of about nine, nine to 10%. And that was because in the 1980s, there were times when China's economy was going at 14% at times. Mm. So you can imagine with that rapid economic growth, there was the, the, the demand for mineral and energy resources for, for China to keep its industry afloat because China's economy was strictly labor intensive. It was an economy that was mostly based on manufacturing, and that is why it became colloquially known as the manufacturing hub of the of the world. But then, what did that do to 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 to, to people in general? People started earning more. They started demanding more. So China knew that for us to keep the people afloat, for us to make sure that we keep them economically satisfied, so that they do not meddle with our politics. Because remember, if we are having trouble catering for the people, they will not believe even in our political system. That was the logic of China. So for us to keep the people happy, we have to make sure that we provide for them. And then how do we provide for them if we do not have a lot of uh, mineral and energy resources? We have to look at our partners, partners that have those mineral bountifuls of those mineral resources. The, the, the almost, one of the most obvious destinations was Africa. Africa. Uh, yes, where uh, our industrial profile is not that big, so from which China would actually benefit a lot in terms of catering for its own people. And because of that, we now saw that China was now making a lot of incursions into Africa. But then there was also a seismic change that was happening from uh, around 1949 to, to, 19, um, to 1998. Uh, a lot of people, especially those, a lot of Africans, especially those from Zambia, would note that Africa's relationship with China was mostly consigned to state level activism, to state level yeah. interactions, um, yeah. multinational corporations by the state, diplomats, maybe a, a few doctors here and there from China. But yeah. then after 1998, China came up with what it called the going out policy. The going out policy. The going out policy, yes, that was actually written into the constitution of the Communist Party of China. I think it was in the year 2000. So mm -hmm. going out policy, China now started saying, well, we have provided for the people of China. Some of them have the material, the money that is needed for them to venture out of China into Africa, into the rest of the world. And because of that, we now saw that there was an evolution of China's relationship with Africa. It was not only a relationship that was confined to state-level interaction. It was a relationship that was also expanding to entrepreneurs from China. People who are coming, not because they've been sent by the government, but out of their own volition, they want investments in Africa. Some of them want to settle down mm -hmm. in, in, in Africa. And that is what uh, changed uh, Africa's relationship with China to, to a great extent. And to this, uh, to, 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 to this uh, age now, Africa still serves China very well because it is a reliable source of resources that China desperately, desperately needs. Uh, that's a very good picture um, to sort of set us into the 21st century. Um, so um, in terms of Africa's relationship now in the 2000s, you see, um, so the global context, there is, you know, China enters the World Trade Organization, as you said, the going out policy, they become a bit more economically uh, liberalized and a bit more sort of capitalist economy. Some people start argue say state capitalism, but as you said, obviously there's more entrepreneurs and increasingly we start seeing China involved in the development, like international development of Africa. We see uh, large amounts of infrastructure. We see the China Africa Forum on China and Africa. I think the, the acronym okay. is FOCAC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we see that happening and you see a lot of African leaders going to China, Chinese leaders 
from Hu Jingtao um, to Xi Jinping visiting. And then Xi Jinping comes in and creates this thing known as the Belt and Road Initiative. And you see large infrastructure projects. For anyone that has been to Africa in the last 10 years, would see radical differences just from if it's in Zambia, if it's in Zimbabwe, if it's in uh, Tanzania, if it's in Angola, anywhere, you see the contrast of what sort of the British or French uh, Portuguese infrastructure that was old and probably under overcapacitated. And then you see brand new gleaming, maybe if it's a train station in Kenya, uh, if it's a port in Tanzania or an airport in Zambia. Um, so why, there, there's sort of this element that, um, before we go to the tensions, there's sort of this element that, you know, China, uh, and let me just quote, find, depending on the controversy, some people might not be, might not agree with the man, but he made a quote in one of the um, FOCAC um, heads of states gatherings, the Forum on Africa-China heads of states gatherings. Uh, Robert Mugabe mentioned that China is doing to Africa what its former colonizers ought to have done. Here is a man. Here is a man representing a country once called poor. A country which never was our colonizer. But there you are. He is doing to us what we expected those who colonized us yesterday to do. Let them, if they have ears to hear, let them hear. So let's just talk about that. Why, why, why did we see this sort of appetite for China in Africa as well? Even though China, maybe of course, it was growing, industrializing, and you needed minerals. But why is it that African countries, particularly African leaders, were so interested and so happy to see China in the two thousands? Thank you very much, Sangya. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's great to mention the Robert Mugabe's speech. It was actually made uh, in two thousand fifteen here in Johannesburg in South Africa. Um, why is it that there is this clamor from Africa to, 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 to court China? I'll put that context first of all in history and then I'll bring it back to today. The first reason is a historical reason. The first uh, reason being uh, the fact that China has never had any history of colonialism on the African continent. And for any country, for any country, outside country that wants to be a credible partner in Africa, that is such an endearing reality. The fact that you've never colonized the continent. So it is steeped in that, that's the first reason. The second reason that I'm going to mention uh, is the failure of uh, uh, structural adjustment programs. These are programs that were initiated by the International Monetary Fund, the IMF and the World Bank in the 1980s. And then uh, coming up to the 1990s when the West said, well, um, Africa and the middle uh, and, and Latin America had experimented with socialism, they had ended disastrously. Why then 
don't you buy into the catechism of uh, liberal democracy and then market economics as well. And then um, that felt for people like me who come from Zambia, we know all too well how structural adjustment program did not only fail, but they actually threatened the government of the time. Uh, uh, President Kaunda once said, I'm not going to uh, pander to an economic template that forces me to shoot at my own citizens. You are saying that because when he withdrew subsidies from MES, under obviously the tutelage of the structural adjustment program, there were a lot of riots and protests in Zambia and uh, the government was forced to shoot at its own citizens. So there was this abysmal failure of how structural adjustment programs had been um, implemented on an African continent, and there was great disillusion. But then what happened? The IMF and the World Bank and the West in general did not take responsibility. They said, well, it's because uh, the, the Latin America and Africa were not ready, or they, 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 they couldn't implement structural adjustment program in a way that could actually benefit them. And uh, we saw this attitude in, in the May edition of 2001 of The Economist, when mm -hmm. Africa was called the hopeless continent. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very, yeah, that's very interesting because the, the, the economists are sort of in this thermometer of what people think of Africa at that time. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I think it was a picture of a young boy with a, a sort of self-propelled rocket missile. And uh -huh. he was standing mm -hmm. and said, Africa, the hopeless continent. Africa, the hopeless um, continent, exactly. Yeah. And then now, uh, what, 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 what happens in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the House of Commons, uh, Tony Blair calls Africa the scar on the conscience of the world. So you can imagine how that uh, made African leaders feel. So this happened at the time when, Af when China's prominence was on the ascent, the West was withdrawing from Africa saying, this is a hopeless continent, no matter what we try to do with them, they cannot really help themselves. So naturally Africa feels, okay, such adjustment programs have failed, we are now being called a hopeless continent, maybe this uh, partner that is on the ascent that is called China can actually offer us solutions because first of all they have a history like ours they know all too well the effects of foreign domination they've been they've, 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 they've had territories seized by Japan by Portugal by by, by, by Britain uh, so they probably they know our experiences as well and uh, Jiang Zemin who was the president before Hu Jintao addressed the African, the, at that time it was called the Organization of African Unity in Addis Ababa in 1996, in which he spoke about solidarity in the Western, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the emerging world. So that formed the template of why now China was looked upon as maybe being a country that could help to solve Africa's, uh, Africa's solutions. The third, the fourth reason uh, Africa has been clamoring for China is actually not a very flattering reason on the part of Africa. It has been used by leaders such as Mugabe. It has been used by leaders such as Eduardo dos Santos, who was in Angola. It has been used by leaders such as Omar al-Bashir, the former president of Sudan. It was, China was just used as a ploy to avoid censure of state-sponsored human rights abuses. So whenever Mugabe is under sanctions from the West, whenever Omar al-Bashir is under sanctions because of the Darfur region, when, when, when Eduardo dos Santos uh, is planning to develop um, its, its potentially good uh, economy in Angola, what do they do? They say, well, we are averse to Western criticism. And so they look up to, up to China as having um, a, a solution to, the, to their problems. And uh, finally, I'm going to talk about 
one of the principles of China's foreign policy, which is the principle of non-interference in the affairs of other countries. So whenever African countries such as Zimbabwe, Angola, and Sudan are criticized, the United States, those who criticize us are interfering in our domestic affairs. So when China says we are a no strings attached partner, that is very endearing to Africa. It is music to African ears, and that explains to a greater extent why Africans have been so upfront in trying to court China. Now that's a that's an excellent sort of analysis of the reasons why um, this relationship has sort of grown so deeper. And also, you also mentioned that there is also sort of a it's not necessarily always the people that are. Um, that love China. I think the youth survey, the Chikowitz youth survey last year, I think put China Africa sort of fondness amongst the surveys almost at a 50, between China and the US, it was almost at a 50 50, very, very competitive. Um, so we also see sort of um, these. Um, these infrastructure projects that have been sort of used as an example of how we can how Africa can choose other partners if it wants to and as you mentioned the uh, Bretton Woods Institutes the financial institutes from the West particularly the IMF and the World Bank um, and how sort of the era of structure adjustment policies um, gave them a bad a very bad reputation and uh, Chinese uh, sort of African countries were moved towards the Chinese option and China had money to spend. And um, however, with increasing Chinese uh, investment, um, just to mention a few days, there was the sort of, um, on one hand, you see sort of this uh, agency of Africa. And then on the other hand, you see the West, um, or sort of Western um, voices, uh, particularly those from um, US foreign policy uh, makers like John Bolton, uh, referring to the debt trap uh, diplomacy that China is uh, perpetrating. So, and so you see massive infrastructure, minerals, like for example, in Congo, there was the five constructions project, I think, if you translate it into English, where China was supposed to build uh, dams, roads, um, and it was sort of tied to mineral um, extraction. As you know, Congo is enormous, enormously rich with rare earths, uh, titanium, copper, cobalt, all of those things that a growing industry and the factory of the world that China um, needs. And so you see this everywhere else. So can you just um, tell us a bit about this debt trap diplomacy? Uh, what are the myths? What are the truths? Because it seems to be a very controversial topic and uh, it's sort of been running the rounds, especially in the last 10 years. Well, thank you. Um, as, as, as some people might know that uh, China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins usually carries out uh, these thorough statistics about China's investments in Africa. Its, it's aid the world over is less than $4 billion a year. So uh, you can imagine that most of its uh, monies actually come in form of the investments and then a concession or concessional loans. So about the debt of diplomacy, it is a way of the United States government, most especially uh, 
John Bolton, spoke about it. Bill Burr spoke about China trying to export uh, its, its, its economic and political template to the rest of the world. And that has been because China's state has been displaced indiscriminately to Africa, to countries such as Kenya, countries such as Zambia, that really did not show, did not show any promise of trying to repay those states on time. Great power competitors, namely China and Russia, are rapidly expanding their financial and political influence across Africa. They are deliberately and aggressively targeting their investments in the region to gain a comp competitive advantage over the United States. China uses bribes, opaque agreements, and the strategic use of debt to hold states in Africa captive to Beijing's wishes and demands. Its investment ventures are riddled with corruption and do not meet the same environmental or ethical standards as U.S. developmental programs. So a lot of people usually uh, think as if, okay, this is now China trying to entrap or ensnare these countries in not paying debts so that China can now seize its uh, the, the, the strategic uh, assets of these particular particular countries. So that is what, uh, one, one myth about the, about the debt trap uh, diplomacy. <clears throat> Another Myth of this is just what I spoke about when we talking about Bill Burr, the, program, the previous attorney general of the United States, that okay, China actually wants to export its system. China, if you look at it, doesn't actually want to export its system, it just doesn't want people to interfere with its political system, its domestic affairs. So that is when uh, China displaces uh, its loan. We give you loans, but don't interfere in our internal, uh, in, in, in internal uh, affairs here. But then one thing that is not usually talked about in this debt trap diplomacy is the presumption that Africa is a passive player kind of. You spoke about African agencies. Very few people, especially from the West, usually acknowledge that Africa has agency in it. So very I think as the book Africa is just passive in all this. Africa is actually an active participant in contracting this debt. Uh, the African Development Bank says Africa is running a deficit of between 100 and 130 billion infrastructure investments annually, and this might actually double in the next couple of years. So Africa is desperately in need of infrastructure investment, and it, it actively seeks out uh, China's debt construction. So if there is a debt trap diplomacy, then it is a diplomacy that is happening with Africa's active involvement. Now, if it happened, that China is going to seize some assets because Africa is failing to to to, to, to repay its debt to China. It would be very fundamentally unfair. It would be fundamentally unfair to just put the whole entire blame on China. It is actually African uh, countries in their zeal to make sure that they cut up on their people, clamoring for for the contraction of, of these debt. So those needs has to be has to be busted. Africa has to be looked upon as being an active. Uh, player in everything that is happening in this debt trap diplomacy. But then obviously it has been clouded by a lot of myths in Zambia. It was mentioned that more China will take over the state broadcaster to take over the state mm -hmm. um, supply of electricity, even though it is clear in Zambian policy that state assets can never be used as collateral. But still, mm -hmm. a lot of people are detractors of China to not believe that and they just said, okay, China is doing this debt trap diplomacy to make sure that Zambia is under its OP. Which is yeah. not true. That was the first episode on China-Africa relations, dragons and lions. We've talked about the Sino-African history and how Africa has played a significant role in China's rise into global politics. We also talked about Chinese loans, trade, aid and infrastructure development in Africa and how the West perceives it. In our next episode, we talk about African agency in the great power rivalry. We also talked about the effects of COVID-19 and the Ukraine war on Chinese and African relations. Finally, we ask, is the Sino-African honeymoon over?
Thank you for listening. Catch us on all our platforms. But before you go, remember to like, follow, share, and of course, leave us a five-star rating. I am an African.